This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Reska, and welcome back to the podcast. What do we got, Tommy? Well, today we're going to look into the causes and really talking about the U.S. involvement in the First World War. It's probably not talked about as much. It often gets overshadowed by, obviously, the Second World War, and a lot of the uh, causes are kind of uh, misconceptions out there about them. Yep. And we'll, uh, we'll kind of move past the causes as well. We'll talk about the U.S. involvement as a whole in the conflict and as well as kind of how the United States gets out of the conflict and also what's happening at home in the United States during World War I. And I think, you know, what you just said is very interesting. I think that has a lot to do with this idea of World War I not being as glorified or as popular, um, especially U.S. involvement in it, as much as World War II. I think that has a lot to do with Hollywood. I mean, well, there really isn't. Right, that many movies. Yeah, there's not that many. Well, yeah, you obviously have 1917 recently came out, but that's not. That has nothing to do with. It has nothing. Well, Americans weren't involved in it that long. Like we get, we declare war, we get involved in 1917. Really, don't get troops over by 1918, and the war is pretty much. You know, we have a big factor. Well, we have we have a huge factor. I mean, the American involvement is one of the reasons that the war ends. Um. But also, as we get into, like a lot of Americans felt that. Um, I'm not saying this is everybody. A lot of Americans felt that the country was almost duped by the British also. That was like a, a feeling of uh, fighting in World War One. That's mm-hmm. another reason why we kind of went to isolationist after that. And it leads into the effects that create World War II, basically. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's get going. Let's, uh, first of all, to prep for this episode, I, I thought myself like, I'm like, okay, I know enough about World War One and U.S. involvement. I've taught it so many times. I'm sure you have as well. And I'm like, I, I I don't need to review for this. I got this. And then like half hour ago, I'm like, okay, I have never not reviewed for any of these. So I'm like, I need to review something. So I did naturally what every history teacher would do. I literally picked up a U.S. history textbook, grabbed a highlighter, and like I was like, all right, because like I felt like I needed to like prep something as opposed to just going and you know cold here. So so you know what, good old uh history textbooks you know it's coming handy sometimes old school old school old school old school that's right although now they're trying to push all the textbooks to be all virtual and digital and stuff and students are given a code now but then i don't like that because then they can't highlight i mean they can but it's pdf well, highlighting it's not the it, same. it's different we're afraid it's a different generation thing yeah nice. you do? don't stress don't stress that's right life is beautiful all right so go. Causes of World War One. Let's just kind of quickly go into what caused the conflict itself. It is itself, it is more, okay. itself. yeah, to quickly. And um, more commonly known at the time, due to the fact that no one knew there was going to be a World War II, this was known as the Great War, or mm-hmm. also commonly known as the War to End All Wars. And that's, I think, something really important to stress, and I always use to stress with my students, is it was being told to people that this was going to be the last war ever, once it really starts to break out. Right, this is going to be last forever. Because I guess, I guess to backtrack a little bit, the Europeans also kind of said that it was kind of it was going to be a short war. Right, both sides thought they would win very quickly. They didn't. They were telling the youth. And I say youth, like the soldier on the fight. You want to be part of this war because you want to be able to tell your grandchildren stories that you fought in this last war ever. Right. Yeah. And the Europeans really didn't have a major war since the Napoleonic era. And they stay kind of the mindset was they need to have this war every once in a while, just kind of get it out of their systems. That was like the mindset going into what becomes World War One. And because they were using these old Napoleonic era tactics, but they were using the, these brand new Modern types technology. of weapons, these yeah. newer types of weapons, mostly like the machine gun, right? That it, they just did Airplanes, not Airplanes, well. machine guns, tanks. Yeah. I mean, you know, submarines. Like this yeah. is... Yeah, and then that's one reason why it becomes this mindset to be the war to end all wars because it was supposed to sour man, mankind's desire for war so much because it was it was so bloody. Obviously, it doesn't. Twenty years later, they have a war that pretty much dwarfs World War One in almost every way. Absolutely. Um, so, kind of real quick, I guess to summarize it, a cause of World War One. Often, when we teach it, I think we all break it down to nationalism, imperialism, militarism, and alliance systems. Uh, nations, and particularly European nations, um, have this like deeply or deeply influenced by this concept of nationalism, right? Like this devotion to the like interests and culture of one's nation, and this nationalism um, oftentimes led to imperialism, which was, um, and this was kind of going on for centuries before early 1900s, yeah. but 
Future podcast. You know, yeah, right. <laughs> European nations um, have been kind of building these empires around the world, and there's a competition for for these colonies around the world. Um, and then, you know, because of nationalism, like my nation's better above your nation, I deserve this land more so than you do. Um, also led to militarism, which is this idea of like, let's develop yeah. armed forces and use these armed forces as a tool of diplomacy. You know, like, look, I'm speaking from a position of power, power a position yeah. of strength. And like, they also you know, needed these big militaries to control all these colonies that they were having around the world. And some of the things that the, as one country made some new form of technology, like the dreadnoughts, right? Like the, the metal clad yeah. ships and stuff, then other countries could too. And they said that was a big mistake that the British actually did because it kind of made, when they unveiled their first dreadnoughts, right? It made every Navy in the world obsolete, basically, including their own. So that new, like that numerical advantage they always had, because they were like the British Empire. They, yeah, they lost. No, they had it. the biggest navy in the world, but it was obsolete by 1914. It, it was obsolete, and, they and everyone was just building these new ships now, and they kind of started from scratch. So you have a lot of these countries jumping in there, and the big rivalry that's really starting to come here, obviously, is going to be Britain and then Germany. This is unified Germany, which is yeah. really trying to now go after Britain as the main power in Europe, the main influence in Europe. And what's crazy is they are they're they aren't they related, right? The British and the uh, the Germans, the Germans, in some way or form, the cousins are all kind of. I know the Russians. They're all related. That's another they're thing. All related so, somehow, yeah, yeah, no, they so, are all related. Yeah, they are. Um, there's actually a great book about it. How this, like, this is one cousins, family yeah. affair. Yep. Um, but like, kind of, I think this also segues a little bit into this alliance system, where yes. you had these different nations that set up these different alliances, and the Triple Entente, I guess, uh, later known as the Allies, consisted of France, Britain, and Russia. Right? They were eventually known as the Allies. But they kind of set up their own alliance system. Yeah, and, and then, that's big. I'm sorry to interrupt, but that I really yeah. always stress how important that was because one, you have Britain and France teaming up, which yep. remember they fought a hundred years war. It was actually 116 years, but they fought a war against each other that lasted for over a century. And these countries were always, you know, rivals of each other. Now they're coming together. They're joining forces because they see how dangerous Germany is becoming. Right. Yep. And then by bringing Russia in, if you look on the map, right. Which we this is like we could kind of bring this up yeah. now that France and Russia are together. Now Germany is su is surrounded on both sides. That's why they bring mm -hmm. Russia into this fold that they can. That if a war does break out, Germany will now have to fight a two front war, and that's which, not going to be very successful. Yeah. Which they do, and they have they make plans for this, which we'll get into, I guess, a yeah. little bit. But you know, it's not that's not very easy to fight a two front war. It doesn't really yeah. happen that often, and very few countries are successful with it. Yeah. The other major alliance was the Triple Alliance, which eventually yeah. uh, becomes actually the Central Powers, but it consists of Germany, initially Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy. Italy yeah. And then um, Italy kind of hops out of that alliance, and what you have is Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire, yeah. which forms um, the, you know, later known as the Central Powers. So let's kind of just quickly get into what, what makes the war break out, and then we'll get into um, kind of more or less how the United States gets involved in this. 1914. Yeah, Austrian Franz right? He's the... Um, Heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, and to give a little backdrop on him, he was not well liked in Austria-Hungary. I mean, so I think his yeah. wife, right, was not well liked. Yeah. And but he gets killed in June of 1914. He was killed by a Bosnian revolutionary, right, from the Black Hand, um, yeah. and that basically sent off this chain of events that's going to lead uh, to. No way. He was. I think he was in. Bo yeah, he was in Bosnia. Yeah. And he Bosnia, was shot yeah. by a Serbian nationalist. Serbia, sure was. Yes, in Bosnia, yeah. shot by a Serbian nationalist. Yeah. Uh, what was the guy's name? Uh, 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 Gavrilo Princip. Yeah, yeah Princip. And he winds up getting beaten and like tortured and stuff like that. Yeah. Crazy. But the crazy thing about his, I don't know if you, I'm so sorry, I know I'm kind of no, no, go, going, go. Off a, going off a tangent here, but I remember saying this, is that they knew that there was going to be some plot and he, um, that um, Princip wasn't the only guy trying to kill the Archduke that day. Yeah. They actually threw a hand grenade at him that didn't go off earlier in the day. Yep. And it didn't go off. At his yep. car, he rolled underneath his car. It just didn't blow up. They're like, oh, okay. So a lot of his bodyguards are like, we should get back. We this is not. It's not safe here. And he's like, no, no, no. Let's keep on going. So they change their route, right? And yep. then um, the pincep apparently he stops. He was gonna shoot the guy, but then he stopped. Um, he knew that you know they changed their course. So what happens? He stops at a um, place to buy not a hot dog, but something similar to that, like a sausage or whatever, like one of those side road vendors. Yeah. And as he's buying this and eating this sausage, he can kind of look through the um, alleyways and he can see that the Archduke is driving through this other alleyway. And he's like, oh, look, I still have my chance. 
So again, in World War One is a ton of these like small little instances that just have to go perfectly right for what to happen to take place. Because if he yeah. doesn't stop at that sausage stand, or the Archduke doesn't like make the left instead of making a right, World War One, as we know it, happens differently or doesn't happen at all, or at least happens later. Yeah, happens later. So you yeah. have so the Serbian nationalist shoots, uh, for, you know, Archduke Ferdinand. Um, and then on July 28th, 1914, Austria-Hungary declares uh, what's expected to be a short war against Serbia. But the problem is that there's this alliance system. So it kind of pulls one nation in after another into the conflict, right? And so that's really why first, both sides were talking so big, right? Like yeah. one, one reason why they were like, because they both knew they had Germany on one side. Well, Austria-Hungary knew they had Germany on one side, right? And Serbia knew they had Russia on, on their side. So it's yeah. pulling these... These, what should have become a Balkan conflict, right, becomes a world yeah. war because of these alliances. That's yeah, because Germany basically says, Germany's like, we're going to back Serbia. Yeah. And then Germany is like, oh, yeah, well, we're back in Austria-Hungary. So then they declare war on Russia. Um, yeah, so Germany declares war on Russia. Russia says she's gonna, they're going to back Serbia, right? Yeah. So, and yeah. and um, Russia mobilizes their army first. That's what spooks yeah. Germany. No one really thought, they didn't really think it was going to be anything from what I was able to, you know, over the years find out about it. They, it, they still didn't think this was going to lead to something big. But yep. because all they, the, the, honestly, they had these big armies and they wanted to use them. So that's something yep. else to really remember. Yeah. So Russia is the first to mobilize their soldiers. Germany declares war on Russia. And then two days later, Germany also declares war on France. Yep. And after they invade Belgium, which had an own pact with Britain, Britain declares war on Germany and Austria-Hungary and boom. When they, the invade, when they invade Belgium, yeah. Yep. And it's important to mention Belgium. We got to talk about Belgium a little bit too. Right. And I think we will because a lot of the fighting takes place there. And we need to kind of understand that, I mean, the main two fronts are is the, is the Western Front and you have the Eastern Front. The Western Front um, is part of a German strategy, which was the Schlieffen Plan. Um, did I pronounce that right? I think I did. Schlieffen, Schlieffen, yeah. Schlieffen, yeah. It's basically um, go through Belgium, right? Knock France exactly. out of the war quickly, yep. go through Belgium, and then focus all their attention on Russia. That's where their real war they're expecting yep. it to be. But they get bogged down. So they get through Belgium. Uh, so Germany, as opposed to attacking France directly, as you're saying, Tom, they attack through Belgium, they get into France, and they kind of get bogged down. Meanwhile, on the other side, they also get bogged down in the east on the Russian front. So now they're fighting a two-front war. And because they get kind of bogged down, more or less, um, they're, they kind of ultimately, uh, the Allies retreat, right, on the western side to the Marne River in France. And that's when they were able to finally stop the German advance by the Marne River in France in September of 1914. And after that, it they can't really outflank one another. No. So what they do is they just dig in for a long siege. I mean, this is what we know as trench warfare. Trench, they the basically warfare, yeah. build these trenches, and that's where the war ends. It's about fighting an inch here, uh, you know, a mile here, a, a, a few yards yeah. here. I mean, it literally is just like a stalemate for the next four years. Well, what happens, and yeah, was- and, the, and the Germans realized that pretty early on, and they fortified their trenches pretty well. If you yeah. see pictures of a German trench versus an Allied trench during this war, the Germans are fighting in a um, defensive position, so they put in better flooring, right? They drain the trench. Some of them even have electricity and stuff like that, like yeah. lights and everything in it. The Allied trenches, because they're always trying to just attack the Germans and break through and break through, are just yeah. like, they never say, oh, we're not going to be here that long. So these are the ones when you hear like the horrible trench warfare, like the trench foot, those trench yeah. rats, right? Being up to your knees in water and God knows what else, okay? Things like that. That's more the Allied, what you're seeing from the, the British and the Belgians and the French. Yeah. So this is happening. It's 1914. The war is pretty much kind of already broken to these two camps. Things are going well. Let's get to the United States. Yes. There um, you go. Yeah, most Americans believe that there's absolutely no reason to join a struggle that's like 3,000 miles away. Like to them, I mean, obviously the public opinion is strong and it is divided uh, due to the fact that we have so many immigrants in this country that are German, they're Austrian, they're, you know, you name it, right? I mean, they're French. So it is divided. But for the most part, Americans are very adamant about the fact, as is our president, Woodrow Wilson, that the United States is going to remain neutral yeah and and we tended to be a little more pro-british i would say and the main reason for that and i always like to stress this was um the british do something very very smart when this war breaks out and they cut right they control the navy right they control Mm -hmm. the seas for the most part so they go and they cut all the transatlantic cables those giant cables that are laying down this is before internet and all this other stuff obviously and they cut all these cables from europe 
to the United States. I think Except- that's a great podcast. The people need to understand this. Like yeah. the way we communicated with Europe was through England, and it was through yeah. an actual cable that was cable laid that was at made the, on the bottom of the Atlantic o- Ocean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, through ships, and, like, and the British, wire. Yeah, and the British cut all of them except the ones coming from England. So now yeah. all the information that we're pretty much getting from World War One about World War One is coming from the, the English. The Absolutely. British and they know what they're doing. It's going to be skewed, right? It's going to have that spin on it, and they're doing that. And the big thing about it is that invasion of Belgium. They know what they're doing, so they're saying that all these pictures are coming out, and they're, all these stories, excuse me, are coming out saying how the Belgium, the Belgium women are getting raped, right? That the Germans are mm-hmm. killing them all. You know, how the Germans had those spike helmets in World War One, which is not there as a weapon. Okay, it's supposed to symbolize all of the Prussian kingdoms coming under one ruler. But they're saying that they're like ripping babies from their mother's hands and sticking them on these spikes and stuff like that, right? That they're yeah. crucifying soldiers in no man's land. None of this stuff was actually happening, okay? Now, I'm sure there were rapes and murders and stuff like that, yeah. obviously. That's but not on, this, not on these massive levels. Because the Germans are just trying to get through Belgium as quickly as possible. The fact that it took them three, four days to get through Belgium is what allows France to be saved. Is the fact that the Belgians actually fight back, right? They didn't expect... Yep. They they didn't expect it to happen. Anyway, that's I'm not going to get too much into that. You know, American but, an American magazine at this time because it is British propaganda actually, um, you know, says literally calls Germany the bully of Europe. Yeah, you have that and, picture of it, like the King Kong looking like guy, yeah, right? Yeah, the helmet, yeah, yeah. Like the brute, right? And, ha- yep. and she's like holding like the baby and stuff like that. And the so Huns. people are hearing about this, the Huns, the Huns, the Huns. So they're seeing it, they're hearing about this and all the information is coming from British, the British. So obviously there's going to be a bit of this like progress side of like, oh my God, these Germans are crazy. Now, these are not the Nazis of World War II. So that's nope. something Oh yeah, let's get out of the way. See, so there are, there's no such thing as Nazism at this point. Doesn't exist. Um, a lot of times students always get confused with that. Like, oh, the Nazis. No, these are not Nazis. Um, Hitler's there. A lot of former, not, a lot of soon-to-be Nazis are are in the yeah. army at this time. Hitler's in the army. He's Hitler's oh, yeah. basically he's, in the yeah, army right now. Yeah, he's he's there. You can see those pictures, you know, of him, yeah. you know, he's he, he's he's excited for this too. He's pumped. Yeah. Um but he's he's just a mere private or whatever. But I'm not he's, sure his yeah. rank, but he's not but really we, we can get to a, so we can get to a story about him at the end before we show Yeah, and I think it'll be cool. And yeah, we'll get yeah. to that one at the end because I know exactly which one you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. It's a, it's um, we should also say that, you know, Americans kind of felt close to Britain also because of the common ancestry and language. I mean, obviously, similar democratic institutions, Anglo, legal yeah. systems. Yeah. Anglo-Saxon. So let's kind of talk about it. The biggest tie that we have that ties us to Britain, rather, is economic. I mean, America's economic ties with allies were far stronger than the ties with central powers. Yeah. Just an idea. Like, before the war, American trade with Britain and France was more than double its trade with Germany. Right? But... um. You know, by 1915, because we already had this set up, this idea that we actually traded so much more with allied powers, with Britain and France before the war even happened. Um, And now there was just a bigger demand for things. So the allies just flooded American manufacturers with orders, right, for any form of war supply. So even though as a nation we are neutral, that doesn't mean that our companies cannot continue doing what they did prior to the war, which is sell to allied nations. So in this case, uh, we would sell dynamite, uh, cannon powder, submarines, copper wire, tubing, armored cars, you name it. Um, The United States shipped millions of dollars of war supplies to the allies, and their requests just kept on coming. As a matter of fact, by 1915, American factories were producing so many supplies for the allies that the United States was experiencing an actual labor shortage. I mean, this is insane, you know, from like... By the end of the war, the trade with the allied nations, so Britain and France, right, uh, quadrupled, while the trade with Germany fell to zero. We basically stopped trading with Germany because of this propaganda machine, which is insane. Yeah, we had a financial interest that make sure the allies won. Yep. Um, Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And that's why a lot of people say that's why we went into war, because of this, the fact that, like... At well, because, point, yeah, because there was no guarantee the allies were going to win either. Like exactly. they were, and we need to get repaid. If especially, get repaid. yeah, if, exactly. Because if, if the if Germany wins, we're not going to get our money. Yeah. So we got to make sure that the side that we want to win wins. Um, and we'll, we can get into that uh, more in a little bit. But that's yeah. really what's what's going on here. It's this propaganda that's spinning. But still, as much as it is, they still don't want to actually enter the war. The American people are mm-hmm. very, very much against it. And that's actually not one like Wilson's campaign in the next election is that like he kept us out of the war. Yep. Yep. Um, and, but so, something, something big happens before then, obviously. Yeah. So let's kind of get into the, the events that bring us in. Uh, first things first. What we're looking at here is the British blockade um, – all German ports, right? So they basically are trying to starve Germany because yeah. the United States, while we're not really sending Germany 
arms, we're still sending them food as are other nations. So England is like, we're going to starve them. And they, they actually kind of do. Um, well, by, the idea they, of this is the idea of total war. Yeah, right? You're not right? just fighting the army. You're also fighting the civilian population. During this war too, they start bombing both sides, start bombing cities. It doesn't yeah. happen as much as you see in World War II with, with the Zeppelin bombs and then obviously with airplanes. They're bombing cities, which they're actually targeting civilians. The idea is let's target the civilians, have them starving, right? Have them being killed. The soldiers will desert and be like, I have to go protect my family. I'm not going to fight in the front anymore. And therefore, that can help us win the war. That was the plan because it was this war was so brutal. And it's the, yeah. not the first time in history this happened, but in modern warfare, when you're targeting civilians, you're not supposed to do that. Ideally, yeah. right? The gentleman warfare. This is, yeah, right. But this is what kind of leads for us to get into this war. And the reason for it is because Germany retaliates through German U-boats. Basically, yeah. uh, the way they look at it is like, all right, we're going to retaliate by sinking any British or allied ships that is anywhere near the waters around Britain. They're just going to sink it. And they're and successful told, doing this. Yeah, very successful doing this. I mean, it's a, again, it's a new technology. Not, I'm not saying this is the first submarine because we have evidence of submarines being around in Civil War, but... You know, American Civil War, that is. But this this is the first successful submarine warfare. You both sink so many ships. And this is kind of where it becomes interesting because, for America at least, May 7th, 1915, a German U-boat sinks the British liner Lusitania off the Irish coast, right? Um, of the 1,100 and, and some persons that were there, 128 were Americans. And this was viewed by a lot of American newspapers as an act of war, that the Germans just killed Americans that were on this Lusitania. First of all, Lusitania was not really innocent because no. although it was a luxury liner, the entire bottom level of it was full of arms and weapons. Yeah, that's one reason over. why it, um, it sunk so quickly. Yep. And, it, and this isn't disputed anymore. And it, I think years ago, probably when we went to school, it was disputed. But then they go down and find the Lusitania a couple years ago. Yep. I remember reading about that and they actually found that no, there, was, there was armaments in there. They yeah. found the papers. And to be, I guess, we you know, giving all the information, the um, German embassy actually took out a ad in the New York Times yep. prior to this and saying, listen, if you are traveling to England, beware that this is a war zone. There is a war going on. And if you are traveling to England across the, the Atlantic, your ship might be sunk. So just be aware. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. And yep. you know, so it was, it was, they took this out in the New York Times, telling Americans, "Listen, this could happen to you, so just you know, be on alert." And um, yep. that's, that's what good. happened. Great book by uh, Eric Larson on this, by the way, called Dead Wake. Um, he, you know, he's obviously a, a historian, but he writes in a very modern, new history. Uh, so it's kind of an easy, fun read called Dead Wake, and it's about Lusitania and all the stuff that um, you know we kind of just mentioned. And then, um, so we kind of start pressuring Germany. First of all, this is the common misconception, especially when teaching this. Yeah. Um, because for it does some not reason, bring us into the war. It does not yeah, bring us into the war. By any means. Like, this happens in 1915. The United yeah. States doesn't declare war uh, until 1917. But what it, I would, this is... What, yeah. What I would but, say is that it yeah, definitely yeah. T changes the morale. Now you're yes. not going to have people kind of like, oh, maybe we like the Germans. Maybe we're on the side of the British. No. Now it's... More the 100% is support of the British for the most part. You're not going to have people at least outwardly saying we should get involved in the war on the on the central power side. That's done. There's, you're not going to yeah. see that anymore. This is going to turn public opinion solely against the Germans. But it's not, again, to the point of let's declare war. Let's send troops to England, to, um, to France, to G Europe. That's We're not there yet. We're still not there. Nope. That's, again, what a lot of misconception is that Lusitania, we go to war. It's not like that. It's not like Pearl Harbor. It's, it's, yeah. That's not what it is. No, it takes uh, almost two years before it happens. But, but it, it does a big event, yeah. Yeah, so what happens within those two years is uh, by January of 19... First of all, so some more ships are, are sank, and we go back and forth with Germany. There's, and Germany signs the Sussex Pledge. So yeah, I was going to say Sussex that. Pledge. And, you know, it's like we're going to stop, but then they're like, they choose not to stop um, sinking our ships. So needless to say, 
um, what does happen here is there's another German provocation, and that happens on January 31st, 1917. Yeah, this one angers everybody, yeah. This one angers everybody, right? Because this is where the Germany basically flat out says um, that they're going to have completely unrestricted warfare, um, and they're going to basically stop and sink any ship near England, whether it's hostile or neutral. And Wilson is like freaked out. Like this basically means that the United States might actually go into war. Well, I think because- we have to talk about context. Like what happened? Like we have to explain briefly, I guess, what happened in Europe at this point, which is changing the British, the German idea. Because the German does, oh, they do go with the Sussex Pledge for about two, about a year and a half, right? Yeah, which means two they years. promise they're going to stop sinking ships. That's basically they're going to stop sinking yeah, the ship, or, they, or, or basically they, they said they're going to surface. They're going to evacuate everyone off the ship and then sink it, which makes no sense, right? But well, I guess they're you know not loss of lives, but we'll destroy all the armaments. That armaments, are but we're not going to we're not going to kill the people. Yeah. That's basically yeah. one of the things they're saying. Um, and they do, happens, they do that. They do that. They for do that. They do that. For, it's worth it to them because they're keeping the United States out of the war. Because remember, they're not really losing World War One at this point. They're actually almost winning it because what happens in 1917 is also um, Russia leaves the war. Yes. So that's very big to understand. The Len- Lenin takes over, they, you know, the whole Bolsheviks and everything like that, which is a whole other you know thing. Podcast, or, uh-huh. yeah, podcast. And Russia leaves the war, so Germany. Yeah, so Germany's been, free to focus on fighting in the West. Focus on the West, and like now we have to go unrestricted submarine warfare again and just beat the British. Bism- yeah. All right, Bismarck is like, forget this. Okay, I'm not dealing with. Uh, Russia anymore on my Eastern front. I can focus everything on the Western front. And he's basically, he's doing a gamble. He knows this is probably going to bring the U S into the war. And he's okay with that because he's thinking he can beat the British before the U S can ever send troops over. Yep. So it's, it's a gamble. And then what he does is obviously he tries to make an alliance or it puts a process in place to try to get uh, Mexico. Yep. The Zimmerman oh, note. The this Zimmerman, is what actually. This is what pushes it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the Zimmerman note is a secret telegram from German Foreign Minister um, Zimmerman to the German amb- German ambassador in Mexico, and it was intercepted and decoded by the British agents. Go figure. Right. Who they run it right know. to. They run it right to the Wilson right away. They're, yeah. They're right excited. to the United States. And the telegram promised an alliance between Mexico and Germany, and promised that if the war with the United States ever broke out, Germany would support Mexico. In recovering its lost territory in Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona from the Mexican-American War, which is what we covered a couple weeks ago, right? Well, I guess it's more than a couple weeks ago. But yeah, a f- you know, a, f- a few episodes ago. Um, yeah. So the Germans hoped that the American War with Mexico would actually keep the United States out of the war in Europe. So the Germans are kind of trying. Yeah, the Germans are kind of trying to instigate Mexico, like, hey, why don't you like start messing with the United yeah. States? You know, the idea is that Mexico will be fighting in the United States and therefore the United States will be too busy to try to go and help. They send troops over in Europe. That's it's yeah. not going to happen. Go ahead. Mexico, they never, it never gets delivered to Mexico. Yeah. I've done research on this past, because I got kind of curious with it. And they said, even if it got there, the, I, the chances that the Mexican government would have gone along with this are virtually zero. They didn't have an army strong enough to even contend with the United States. It's, there would have been no way for them to actually do this. So if they would probably would have rejected the offer um, yep. because it just wouldn't have made any sense. So you didn't try to invade the United States. And the United States would then, there was a fear still then that the United States would just come and take over more of Mexico then. So yep. they, it was just probably wasn't going to amount to anything. Um, but the Germans were willing to take that gamble. But when this comes out, this just, how dare you try to have our neighbor to the South invade us? Like, how dare you do that? So this is what angers the American government. Wilson goes to Congress, says his speech, and then the United States will now de- declare war on Germany. Yeah, April 2nd, yeah, April 2nd, 1917, Woodrow Wilson goes before a uh, joint session of Congress. Yeah, recruiting so- soldiers, conscription, right? Eventually you have about 2.8 million Americans um, through the selective service to be drafted to fight in World War. II. Yeah, so let's kind of get into this, like uh, mobilizing and kind of what the United States does there. Um, raising an army, as you said, Selective Service Act is created. Uh, today we're we all know it. I mean, when you and I turn eighteen, they sent us our Selective Service draft cards. Yes. Basically, you can still um, look, we can still look up our numbers. I had probably still there, right? No, they're still there. Yeah. I mean, I have my card somewhere actually. I made sure I didn't lose it, which means I put it in a safe spot. Which means I have no idea. You don't even need it. You don't even need it. No, everything's need, digital. Just need your social security number. Yep. But um, essentially, it's an act that requires all men um, to register with the government. So it's like there's no hiding from the government. You're going to register with the government, and then you will be randomly selected for military service. And by um, 1918, 24 million men had registered for the act. Um, Of this number, about 3 million were called up 
and about 2 million troops, American troops, actually reached Europe uh, before truce was signed. And we, like we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, you know, we got there kind of late. So in a grand scheme of things, just the fact that we got 2 million across, that's that's not that bad, right? So the eight-month training period takes place partially in the United States and partially in Europe. There's a, a huge diversity in military as well because the government is really trying to fight these central powers in any way possible. So there's these publications that, that are appealing to all Americans, regardless of race or ethnicity, um, to support this war effort. Like one pamphlet reminded Americans that, you know, black men, yellow men, white men from all quarters of the globe are fighting side by side to free the world from Hun peril. I mean, that's literally what the, you know, the pamphlet. That's was crazy for 1917. Yeah. Um, also, one thing a lot of people, you guys probably see this all the time, but just maybe you don't know that it came from here, but the famous I want you for the U.S. Army Uncle Sam, Uncle Sam yeah. recruiting poster, you know, the finger like I want you for the U.S. Army, that comes out of World War One. It, it the idea was to kind of create a poster that appealed to a sense of patriotism. And obviously, you know, this I want you for the U.S. Army has appeared in multiple wars since then, but it was created during this time due to the fact that we're trying to get so many Americans to get registered and be sent over there. About 400,000 African-Americans uh, would ultimately serve in the armed forces. Um, they served in segregated units. Um, they were excluded from the Navy and the Marines, however, so mostly um, just Army. The most famous of these, which I think deserves a podcast of its own, is the uh, 369th Infantry Regiment, also mm -hmm. known as the Harlem Hellfighters. Yeah. Um, they served a record 191 days in the trenches. And they were and given some of the hardest, highest casualty missions. Yeah, they were kind yeah. of like the first ones in and stuff like that. And it was because, basically, racism. I mean, they, were saying, yeah. they didn't really they, care as much of what happened to them. And so yeah. it was horrible. Um, but yeah, the France, France gave them like the highest military honors. I mean, for, for, yeah, they were actually very welcoming to them. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. I understand too, like when the Americans come over, a lot of Americans, a lot of the mindset was us going over to help the French. And it was kind of our payback. We're going to help you. You helped us in the revolution. Now we're here to help you too. Right. And there's that saying, like, who's in, like the person that was in charge of the American soldiers, Pershing, supposedly. Again, this is kind of debated, but it makes for a good story, right? That's what history is. Yeah. On his way, as the soldiers are going to the front, he stops by the grave of the Marquis de Lafayette, right? I'm yeah. sure you heard this. And yeah. he says, Lafayette, my name is Pershing. I'm here with the Americans. So supposedly he says, we are here to return the favor. Yeah. So that's really what, how a lot of Americans saw this, right? The French helped us win the revolution. Now we're helping them basically save their country from the Germans here. When the American Expeditionary Force, AEF, which is what we were referred to as, that's what the American Army was referred to, uh, that was led by John Pershing, um, arrived in France. France actually wanted us to basically fill in, or rather fill out, like empty numbers in their battalions. In and, their battalions and we were like, yeah. no, that's not no. going to happen. Yeah. Like we're going to fight as the United States, United States Army. Army. Like we're not going to be here to just basically fill up your ranks because yeah. your soldiers died. And Remember, that, the United States Army was not what it is today, what it is no, later on. We were like, not a was, world power at this time. It was no, no, And we had no interest in it. Well, we yeah. did. And that's, that's not true. Like, especially with yeah. imperialism, but we had like a we, very we were small... new to it. Yeah. We, I would say we were new to imperialism yeah. considering the Spanish american war like as an empire building nation we've only been that for maybe 20 years while the european nations have been it for hundreds you know what i mean like that's yeah. the difference we didn't have this war this war like um culture mm -hmm. glorifying it as the yep. europeans did yeah this yep. long history that they did so before you know as we before i guess we get into like what type of war it was and what americans did here um first of all did you ever read max brooks harlem hellfighters uh parts of it max brooks so, is a great author yeah yeah, so he wrote uh, World War Z. So yeah. for you guys listening out there, um, Harlem Hellfighters is actually a graphic novel. Um, yeah. And it's awesome um, about the Harlem Hellfighters. So just uh, I forgot to plug that before because it's a good book. But as we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, this is a much different war. I mean, uh, machine guns, right? Uh, 600 rounds per minute. It, it, actually, did you see this? I don't know if you saw this statistic. Um, machine guns are responsible for 90% of all Allied okay. casualties at the yeah. Battle of the Somme in 1916. Which is crazy. Which is insane. And then airplanes are huge during this time. 
and airplanes are kind of cool because they're basically made out of wood. I mean, they're they're so not what we consider airplanes today, and they're initially they're so new. Remember, I mean, airplanes were only like twelve years old. At this yeah, point. they're so like, new. Like think about uh, that, and they go, let's put bombs on it. No, but, yeah, and they yeah. started with bringing bricks up there and sort of throwing bricks. Yeah, down right, so they, were, they they would drop hooks in the trenches and just drag yeah. the hook and rip people apart. Yeah. Mean, any anything they could do, really. The airplanes, I know we talked about like the Red Baron, the dogfights, and they were spectacular yeah. to watch, but they also probably didn't have that much impact on the war itself. Nope. Yep. Mostly airplanes are used for reconnaissance, seeing where the trenches yeah. were, and they would pilots would fight and shoot at each well, other. That's what it was. The pilots, that's what dogfights. So they started bringing yeah. like pistols with them at first. Yeah. Like, wait, why is this other guy shooting at me? Then they brought machine guns, and then they finally, halfway through the war, they mounted machine guns and they created this interrupter gear, which kind of permitted the stream of bullets to avoid yeah, so the, 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 the blades. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, that, that, and then one of those planes crashed. The other side found that they did the same thing, and they just kind of just one up each other. Crazy. Uh, with it, but yeah, basically you have these you have trench warfare, right? And one yeah. thing that also makes this complicated is something that um, the United States has in abundance, and something we we ship over a lot, which is barbed wire. I don't think yeah. we can really talk about World War One without the importance of barbed wire because barbed wire is super easy to make, it's super cheap, but it is super effective too. You just wrap some barbed wire around something that makes it totally impassable. Yep. And Unless then, you have a tank, which was a whole well, new thing. Well, comes on, but you try to have barbed wire and you try to run across that when another guy's shooting machine guns at you. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, yeah probably not. Probably that's not. why you having, you know, more people die at the Battle of the Somme, more British soldiers die at the Battle of the Somme than the U.S. losing the entire war. That's yeah. crazy that's you crazy. think about that. Um, so the Americans kind of get there right in time. So the U.S. troops play a major role in throwing back German attacks at Chateau Thierry um, and Bielewood. But also primarily the, the biggest thing that we take place, that kind of we, not that we take place in, but that we partake in is um, Germans' last ditch desperate offensive, right? Which is the Second Battle of the Marne, which yeah. happens in July of 1918. 18, yep. Um, the Germans suffer like 150,000 casualties, retreat by August 3rd. But the United States, the Allies overall, the counterattack in the September with the United States kind of defeating the German troops. Uh, Mikhail, near a uh, French-German border, this yeah. is where well, we really kind of yeah. make our name for ourselves. The Argonne some, Forest. So and I think it's important to stress too, and I guess this is going to sound, I always, when I teach this, it sounds very like pro-USA. And it is, I guess. I was going to say. Well, it is, but it's also like, it's, it's also what's happened. And they talk about this, is that the Americans fought very differently than the British and the French and the Bel- you know, they, than the European way of fighting. The European way of fighting back then was very much like a game of chess, right? If you outflanked your opponent, if you did X, Y, and Z, there was the gentlemanly thing, right, to surrender, right? Because you're not going to have your entire force be wiped out. You're not going to cause unnecessary loss of life on both sides, right? And yeah. the Americans come in and they're like, no, we're not going to do that. So that what happens a lot of times in the Argonne Farce. There's a great movie about this. Um, books, movies, documentaries about the Lost Battalion. I'm sure you heard of it, right? Oh, that's actually um, a pretty good movie. It's a pretty it's good an movie. A and E movie. Yeah, but so it, it was books and stuff before then. Yeah. And it's basically this battalion that gets surrounded, right? And they get cut off from their own line. And the Germans know they're there, and they keep on trying to get this group to surrender. And they're just like, "No, we'll negotiate your surrender, but we're not surrendering." And they capture some of the swords. Like, why are you not surrendering? They're like, "Because we're not. Like, you, if you want to beat us, you're going to have to beat us." And the Germans just can't fathom this. They just, why are you are beaten? Why are you not surrendering? So basically, they describe it in the book as we, it was basically a thorn in the German side that just got infected. And the Germans were pouring so much manpower to go after the Americans at this one spot in the Argonne Forest because the Americans just kept on fighting it off, fighting it off. They couldn't have survived forever. It's like going to be like another Alamo type of deal, right? Yeah. They're just going to eventually run out of ammunition or run out of whatever. Um, but because they just keep on going after them, they're preoccupied with that. They can't re- – they, they, they're pulling forces away from other parts of the line, particularly where the French and the British were. They're able to break through in those parts. And once the German line breaks, that's it. That's going to be the beginning of the end. Yeah, the collapse of Germany, by the way, comes shortly thereafter all this. Yeah, um, yeah. It's, and, it's, uh, it's, because yeah, it's the, the story you just mentioned happens in the Argonne Forest, which is yeah. one of the last pushes, you know, military pushes of this, of this um, conflict. But um, by late 1918, the war is basically crippling the German economy. Civilians are lacking food and supplies. There's food riots and strikes that erupt in Germany, as well as Austria-Hungary. Um, and Britain too. Britain's not yeah. big. Britain, oh, French, like they're, a, they're all done. bankrupt. They're, if yeah. you're fighting this war, with the exception of small, some of the smaller countries, obviously the United States, you're bankrupt. Like yeah. this war wiped you out. 
Forget about so the Austria, human toll, yeah. Right? So November 3rd, 1918, Austria-Hungary surrenders to the Allies. And um, basically that same day, German uh, sailors actually mutiny against government authority. Yeah. Um, more or less by November 9th, uh, it is very obvious that actually socialist leaders in the capital of Berlin establish a German republic, which is what Hitler eventually yeah. points to. Um, the Kaiser gives up the throne. He, he flees. But what's important is they're not surrendering. I think that's also something that history kind of gets confused on. It's not a surrender. When World War I, when the guns go silent, it's, well, you know the time, right? It's 11-11-11. It's yeah. and, and that's again, goes back to this whole... Yeah, 11th hour crazy. on the 11th day of yeah. the 11th month of 1918, Germany... Cease fire. Yeah, because it's supposed to be the last war ever. So they yeah. wanted to have like a special time, really just so that school children could say a hundred years later, you know, when did the last war end? And the school kids would be like, oh, the last war ever ended on the 11th hour, the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918, which is not true. There's going to be yeah, another right. war. But the, the this, this armistice could have, the thing that drives me nuts is this armistice could have ended the war or brought the fighting to a stop days before, definitely hours before, but they waited they waited, when I say they, the powers that be, right? Because yeah. they wanted they wanted that catchphrase. They wanted that 11, and 11, they still 11. send out troops. So, like, people still died. At, at 1058, 1059, yeah. they're still sending out troops. And they knew, they the, the generals, they knew, no, 11 o'clock, it's going to be over. And they just said, keep on sending troops out because they wanted those bargaining chips for the actual treaty. Which is insane. It's so insane. literally, people dying at 1059, oh, 11 o'clock, all right, stop firing. Like, wait, what? Yeah, war's so, over. So, like, you know... <laughs> Just so we could kind of sum this up with the war itself. And I think we'll also talk a little bit about what's happening in the United States at home yeah, during this time. But yeah. mm -hmm. um, World War One was the bloodiest war in history up to that point. Nothing yeah. compares to it. Um, death numbered about 22 million. That's more than half of them. Uh, more than half of these people were civilians. In addition, 20 million people were wounded. 10 million more became refugees. Uh, the direct economic cost of the war may have been about $338 billion dollars. Yeah, it's 300 um, billion just in the United States. Yeah, for the United States. Yep. And the United States lost 48,000 men in battle, uh, another 62,000 dying of disease, um, and more than 200,000 Americans were wounded. And Russia loses three fourths of its army. I like know. Their army was over 12 million. I know. And that is nothing compared to what happened in World War II. Yep. This entire war is nothing. Well, I don't want to say nothing, but. If you compare it to World, yeah, if you, in numbers. comparison to World yeah. War II, it's just and that's just like crazy. Then when you think about how this war, how they said this is total destruction, sickens us to war. Mankind will never have another war. Yeah, yeah. really. Okay, twenty years later, there's there's a war that dwarfs this in every possible way. And uh, before we kind of move on to the home front stuff idea, Doughboy is what yes. the American soldiers were called at the time. And I, you know, I always try to find out for my students, and we always find the same things because. No one really knows why their American soldiers are called doughboys. Oh, because if you poke them in their stomach, they would go, eh, 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 just like that little guy on TV. Isn't that what it was? <laughs> yeah, totally. Isn't that um, what it was? Well, according to one explanation, okay, I mean, yours is better, obviously. Um, the term dates back to the Mexican-American War uh, because they said the American infantrymen made such long treks over dusty terrain. Uh, so they said it actually gave them this appearance of being covered in flour or dough. Yeah, that That's was one. also something, something to do with their uniforms. Was another yeah, thing, then there was right? another thing that it, they used this dough to like clean off their belts or something. It was like clay or dough that they used. I don't know. There, again, there's, there's then someone says something to do with their buttons and on their color of their uniforms. Another thing how to do the idea is that they were such like fresh soldiers. They were like dough coming out of the oven, like not cooked yet, not ready for battle. I heard that whole thing that the doughboys. Right. No, but needless ready. to say, the American soldiers were known as doughboys, just like the British soldiers were known as Tommies, which is an abbreviation of Tommy Atkins, which is like a generic name. Like in the United States, we would be John Doe. Um, in England, it would be Tommy Atkins, so they were known as Tommies. But Americans were known as doughboys. So um, again, another great book. I'm sorry, guys. But another great book is actually The Last of the Doughboys, and it's by Richard Rubin. He wrote this in like 2005. So kind of a crazy story, Tom. In 2003, right? Um, so this is 85 years after the World War One ended. This author is like, you know what? I'm going to try to find any alive, still Survive. living American veteran of World War One, and he sets out and finds like a dozen of them, like age like a 113, wow. and he interviews all of the last surviving, hence the last of the Doughboys, um, last surviving 
Doughboys. I, I mean, it's an amazing story that these people are alive like post 9-11, you know, like and they fought in World War One. Crazy story. But um, two very known American Doughboys and American um, soldiers from this war. One wasn't really a Doughboy, Eddie Rickenbauer, right? He yeah, was a famous uh, fighter pilot. pilot. He's our um, version of the Red Baron. Yes, absolutely. He actually fought against the Red Baron. But um, so he engaged in 134 air battles, downed 26 enemy aircraft, uh, and became like the number one American ace of aces, they said. But interestingly enough, he, first of all, he was a race car driver back before the war in the United States. Then he goes to France as a driver and to like the aviation division. And as a driver in your airfields, he starts like asking people to teach him how to fly so he learns how to fly on his own and by the time he joins the u.s army air service he basically becomes like the old-time best ace american pilot you know this guy didn't even know how to fly until months prior and the other story which i think is also could be a podcast in its own would be uh, alvin york which is a crazy story of sergeant Sergeant York. york yeah um this is a guy that First of all, was the conscientious objector, refused to go to war because he said the Bible said that, you know, that shall not kill. Then he goes to war. Um, and then on October 8th, 1918, he's armed with only a rifle and a revolver. He winds up killing 25 Germans and then captures single handedly, as weird and crazy as that sounds, 132 German prisoners. Um by himself again you guys should read his story because it's insane they said it was like now disputed that perhaps there was six other doughboys that helped him do the capture but again the story itself is, is awesome i mean it's just crazy stuff so i yeah. think we're gonna finish up real quick with how does the war change the united states back home right for americans well a couple of things like when the war is mobilizing it changes a lot of uh, anything germans kind of like outlawed believe it or not mm-hmm. right they like, like sauerkraut you can't call it sauerkraut it's liberty cabbage right it's liberty dogs things of that nature german was a very popular language it was no longer allowed to be taught in schools but i think one of the biggest thing is you had the national war labor board right mm-hmm. and basically in exchange for war uh for wage increases in an eight-hour workday um and the right to unionize for unions and collectively bargain the labor leaders agreed not to disrupt war production with a strike yeah. And so that's one reason why it's kind of like going on. And but then when the war ends, now you, that's why in the 1920s you start seeing more like labor strikes and stuff like that. Yeah. But they're saying, all right, we, we we purposely did not strike. You gave us some stuff during the war years. We purposely didn't strike to help win the war. Now we want what was promised to us. Yeah. And that's going to usher that in. So the, like you said, the war industries board there, like to get a little bit more specific with it, basically Congress gives President Wilson direct control over the economy, which is so unprecedented but also so against the idea of like laissez-faire capitalism he basically nationalizes industries right um urges industries to eliminate any waste by standardizing production uh basically setting production quotas and allocating raw materials to companies this war industries board which is a government agency basically tells businesses how to run their business it is so un-american at the time um, but as you said, people were like, hey, listen, it's war. We're going to do the right thing and we're going to kind of stay back. And it, it does. The War Industry Board does um, up our production by 20% during the war. So it definitely works. But, for example, it tells um, like typewriter ribbons. It takes tells a company make only five colors instead of 150 colors. Like they would get very specific as to telling companies what they could or could not do. Um, but going back to this union membership, absolutely. Uh, it climbed from 2.5 million in 1916, uh, right before the United States entered the war, to more than 4 million by 1919 when we left the war. And then strikes, as you said, just kind of break up afterwards because people are like, all right, um, enough is enough. Another thing is food administration. Um, there is yep. the fuel administration and food administration. But daylight savings comes out because of this. Because of this, absolutely. Yeah. It's designed so that's, that's important this to time. remember. So for those of you guys that don't like uh, daylight savings time, it is here because yeah. of World War One. It was War. a World yeah. War One measure um, to kind of you know take advantage of longer days of the summer and save on fuel consumption. Save, yep. um, they had gasless Sundays, lightless nights, to conserve fuel. Then you had food administration under Herbert Hoover, where you have this idea that, you know, one day a week was meatless Monday. And then there was a sweetless day and there was wheatless days and ration cards and everything like that. Something that like generations later just couldn't even understand. 
Yeah. Like, that's what happens. The country actually goes to war. There's going to be things that you're not going to be able to get. Yeah. That's what actually would happen. I'm going to try that with my kids tomorrow. They're going to be like, Dad, can I have some like, you know, candy? And I'd be like, nope, today is a sweetless day. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know how to go. <laughs> um, and when it comes to selling the war, obviously, the United States spends about $35.5 billion on the war effort, right? And a lot of that stuff comes from taxes, but also liberty loans and victory loans and bonds, selling bonds, and you know, yeah. buying victory bonds. bonds. Um, and this become well, it's, it's funny because it's almost like the United States government creates a blueprint during World War One on how to run World War Two at home. Oh yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Right? Without a doubt. Not to mention the propaganda aspect. I mean, they created a committee on public information, which was basically like, all right, we're going to um, get I mean, artists, movies, yeah, it was anything yeah, they, they can movies, do, posters, cartoons, anything. You want to dehumanize, yeah, stuff. you want to dehumanize the enemy. Yeah, that's why the Germans are the Huns, and they look like you know gorillas and stuff like that. You got to kill them, and you see that ten times over in come World War Two. Yep. Then you have the Espionage and Sedition Acts, which are so unconstitutional, but nonetheless considered an, uh, a war measure that is necessary for interfering with the war effort or for saying anything disloyal, and, profane, or abusive. Yeah. And but what is that? Like you can say, I don't believe in the war. Up, we're locking you up. Yeah, you know, like that's some of the stuff that happened to people during this time and it was it's very much just like flies in the face of the constitution freedom of speech freedom of the press but their ideas are saying this is for the war effort this is for the ideally they're saying this is for the greater good right yep yep um and a lot of them actually target socialists and labor leaders oh, absolutely, as yeah. like because you know you're so, speaking against the war how could yes. you do that that's that's not patriotic um there also another thing that happens during this time is the great migration where you have a large scale movement of hundreds of thousands of Southern blacks uh, move from the South to the cities in the North and promises of, of new jobs. And you kind of, this kind of creates overcrowding in the North and, and kind of intensifies racial tensions, like kind of in the civil rights movement, a small in the 1950s one in the and 60s time, yeah. women in the war. I think again, same thing. Oh, this yes, is like a yes. precursor to what happens in world war two. Yeah, they're going to go women. to work. They're going to work in the factories. They're going to be nurses on the battlefield. Yeah, um, it's a much smaller level simply because the war ends within so what fourteen months after we get involved. Yeah, um, but it's again, like you said, it's set in the blueprint. You have like the you have what works and what doesn't. You kind of have a working knowledge of what of how we're going to do this twenty years later. Yep, and um. To kind of finish this up, just so we're on the same page here, the war ends officially for the United States. Uh, Woodrow Wilson presents his idea of 14 points, right, to uh, to Congress. Um, and Wilson's 14 points was basically outlined specific proposals for peace. Uh, he marked his whole new philosophy of foreign policy and that like a democratic nation should be based on a sense of morality, not just national interest. And, and it was these goals to make sure that there's never another war. This, and they could have uh, worked. They just don't get yeah. signed. They, they, I yeah, mean, they, they look good on paper, I guess we could exactly. say. Exactly. And the two major um, aspects of this was self-determination, which is the right of people to, cho um, to choose their own political status. Um, and the other was the League of Nations, which would basically provide like a forum for nations to discuss and settle their differences without having to resort to war. The problem is that the League of Nations didn't have a military backbone to enforce it, if well, anyone it's more than just that, too. Wrong. Yeah. Also, the United States doesn't join it, and, and that's, that's something you have to spend. Yeah. Like we, we'll talk a lot about the um, Treaty of Versailles another time, I guess. But like, United yeah. States does not sign the Treaty of Versailles. We don't yeah. sign it. We have our own separate peace with Germany because if Wilson's fourteen points, we support thirteen of them. We do not support the idea of a League of Nations because we think that's going to pull us into a war. And at the point, yeah. at this point, the United States is a powerful country because we're, we're kind of the only creditor nation out there for the most part, right? Like a big time nation. Yep. Uh, we do have a large military now coming home from the war. And we're also, our home our home front was not bombed during the war at all. It wasn't damaged. Yep. So we're, we're ready to go. That's one reason why the Roaring Twenties becomes the Roaring Twenties because of all of our success in World War I. Um, it's, I always kind of say, you know, like the League of Nations is basically great on paper, but it's kind of like the Justice League without Superman. Yeah. You know, like how are you, is it, is it really going to, what's it, what's it going to do? It, it has some backbone, but really it's just, it's just what, it's just a guy in a bat suit driving around in a car. What's that really going to do in the big scheme of things when things get really bad, you know? Yeah. Nothing. So, and that's what the League of Nations was. It had no teeth. It had no big gun to really come in there and intimidate to stop people. And that's what it does. And when, that's why it falls apart with Japan and everything like that 20 years later. 
so yeah i mean uh i guess that pretty much wow we could we did this in under an hour dude i mean i am, uh, we could still go on for hours too well, of course but... <laughs> yeah i mean just again overview here yeah so um, this is just a, it's a quick hit the quick hit yeah but I'm, I'm impressed that we were able to do this in, in under an hour if you ask me this is pretty good so this is in a nutshell the united states during or United States involvement in World War One, yeah, kind of the causes that brought them in. A little bit about why they fought in the war, what they what, did. They, what, what basically happened in the war, and how the war kind of changed the United States a lot. Because yeah. we we're, not, we're never the same after World War One. We try to go back to what we were before World War One. We do. We try to be more of an isolationist. We try to do everything uh, that we were doing before, but it's just kind of hard. It's kind of hard to go back there. And in the Roaring Twenties, obviously, change changes a lot. And then we hit with the Great Depression, and that's going to lead us into the world events that lead to the Second World War. Oh, that's right. Our, our Hitler story. I have to do the Hitler story real fast, right? Yeah, you, you should. But before we get to the Hitler story, uh, we should also say that there's no way ever that we could do U.S. involvement in World War II no, no, in no, under no. an hour. It just wouldn't work. No. <laughs> it just would never work. All right. Yeah, let's get up to the Hitler story because that one's pretty cool. Well, basically, it goes to the story that um, – Back in, well, actually, the story originated back in World War II, right? Mm-hmm. And it was basically, there was this painting that Hitler sees, and it's this painting of a British soldier with his gun drawn on a German soldier and him letting the German soldier leave, right? Yeah. And Hitler says, oh, that's, that's, that's me, right? And yeah. the soldiers, basically, what happens, it's September of 1918. It would kind of go down the lore of World War I history. Um, this details are still unclear, but basically it's a British soldier by the name of Private Henry um, Taddy, right? He's near a mm-hmm. French village and he encounters a wounded German soldier and declines to shoot him. He decides not to shoot this guy. The guy's injured. He sees him. They kind of lock eyes. And he's like, the war is coming to an end. He's this guy's like my age. I'm not going to shoot him. He lets him leave. And they find out later that that was actually a 21-year-old Lance Corporal by the name of Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. And they just say how different the world would be, or world events at very least would be, if um, Tandy would have just pulled the trigger and shot and killed Hitler right there. He basically just didn't do it for whatever he just says. He looked in the guy's eyes. This guy was, you know, he just kind of, why why shoot him at this point? He's already beaten. He's defeated. Hitler winds up, you know, spending the rest of the war in a coma shortly after this anyway. But he spares Hitler's life. And then look what happens. Crazy. I just thought that's one of those things. Is just like I remember bringing it up to the students, and I think they did kind of a reenacting on it when History Channel did that um, World Wars documentary, right? And they spanned when they did World War One and World War Two as one World War. It came out maybe like I don't know four or five years ago. It's really it's really well done. They follow lies like Hitler, Churchill, Stalin, Roosevelt, oh. Patton, a few that others. That was a great docu series. Um, yeah. yeah, the was World pretty, was, was that a World? No, it wasn't World War. It was that called was the, 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 This one was called the World Wars. Yeah, that's what it was. And it did like kind of up until World War One, then it did World War One, then it did like the interwar years, and then it did World War Two. And everything World War Two kind of these had their lives. These certain individuals had their lives span these those those uh, major events. And they show this guy he could have shot Hitler, and he just doesn't. And he says, and this, you know, he just didn't shoot him, and uh, that changed world events. Because if Hitler dies, it would have just been another you know name on a list. Out of Hitler, Lance Corporal, 29, killed September 28th, 1918. How that would have changed world events. That's right. So it's like the hot dog cart changed world events and made World War I happen as we know it. If Tandy just shoots Hitler there, okay, things are much different. This concludes our episode on, you know, United States in World War I. Um, we will not be doing United States and World War II as a whole episode. That's not going to happen. However, we might we might do some stuff here and there at some point. Well, well, we, we have to get into that. talking about some Saving Private Ryan and World War II movies. That's always on a agenda here. We just never get to it. Someday, someday. Well, nonetheless, everyone, thank you so much for tuning in once again to our podcast. We greatly appreciate it. And wherever you do listen to this podcast, do not forget to hit subscribe and leave us uh you know a review if you if you you know if you enjoy this um and as i always say if you don't then please do not leave us a review um so i hope free everyone speech. Free speech. Free speech, right? <laughs> so i hope everyone has an amazing week and i uh, hope you guys tune in again next week to listen to our next podcast thank you so much stay safe everybody
hope everyone enjoyed our podcast. And if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. Hey, everyone. My name is Jenna Spinelli, and I host and produce a podcast called Democracy Works. It's a collaboration between the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. If you enjoy this podcast, I think you'll like our show, too. Every episode examines a different aspect of what it means to live in a democracy. Sometimes it's big picture issues like neoliberalism or demagoguery, and other times it's more on the ground topics like ranked choice voting and how local news deserts are democracy deserts too. Some of our previous guests include Jonathan Haidt, Andrew Sullivan, and even Wynton Marsalis. So I hope you'll check out Democracy Works. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts.